0: Revelation, chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown."
1: It's a little chilly in here, isn't it? I just want to acknowledge that. Just like I like it. <laughs> you know me. It's going to be hot up here soon. All right. We got, we got two more weeks in this series that we've been working through in the second and third chapter of the book of Revelation called Letters from Jesus. And um, today we're looking at the letter to the church in Philadelphia, a city on the western side of ancient Turkey, Asia Minor. And uh, let's take a look at that together. And let's say a word of prayer as we do so. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you give us this word. We don't even take it for granted that we have printed scriptures in our hands, and our hearts, ready access, that we can hear from you. And so come, Holy Spirit, and use your words to comfort us or pierce our hearts or challenge us with grace and truth in a way that perhaps we most need individually, but also our church as a whole. We're asking for you to do a real work here, not something perfunctory or just sort of going through the motions, another sermon. No, God, we pray that you would meet us, And help us to hear your voice. In Christ's name, amen. A few weeks ago, I was uh, flipping through the, the TV on a Sunday afternoon, and I came across the New York Marathon. I don't know if any of you actually ran that marathon, perhaps. I know a lot of D.C. folks like to run marathons, but I was there watching the Ethiopians and the Kenyan runners crushing it, racing through the Bronx, and just noticing Uh, with a little bit of discouragement how, you know, in the end, as it turns out, their 26-mile split is still faster than what most of us can run a half-mile like right off the bat, right? That's how fast these runners are. They're amazing. And I sat there thinking to myself, how do they make it look so easy? They're barely breathing, right? I mean, how do they make it look so easy? I asked myself, while popping sour cream and onion potato chips in my mouth. (laughs) And of course, it wasn't easy. It's not easy. They had trained hard, in many cases, for years. The muscles in their legs were built up to world-class strength. The breathing in their lungs were well-trained. Their minds, their mental strength was at top shape. They had built up their stamina their endurance, and that was precisely why they were able to run such a race, all 26 miles, at such great speed. That afternoon, I was admiring their physical endurance. In today's passage, Jesus is pointing our attention to a different kind of endurance, spiritual endurance. Spiritual endurance for this marathon called life. You see, because faith is, in fact, kind of like a muscle that needs to be worked out and that can grow. And our lungs, uh, our our souls are are kind of like lungs uh, that that can grow in their capacity to keep on going. Spiritual endurance is the theme of of Jesus' words to this church in the ancient city of Philadelphia. Spiritual endurance, you might say, is basically the ability to keep on going, even in the face of hardship and struggle. We hear this in Jesus' letter, his address to these Christians in the middle of verse 8, where he says, I know, I know you have little strength. When he says in verse 11, hold on to what you have, hold on, hold fast. He says, so that no one will take your crown, and the word there that's translated crown, the kind that's mentioned isn't a tiara that was normally worn by kings and queens, a royal crown, but rather a victor's crown that a champion athlete would wear at the end of a race of a marathon. In verse 10, he says, you have kept my command to endure patiently. Endurance is the theme. And why was such patient endurance needed by these followers of Jesus? Well, we have a couple of clues, and if we piece it together, here's sort of the backdrop to this letter. Jews were converting to Christ, and because they were turning from the heritage of their families to this new faith in Christ, they were suffering persecution by fellow Jews. In fact, they were being excommunicated, kicked out from their local synagogues, expelled as outsiders to the Jewish community, to their own people, and reviled, in fact, as enemies of God. And that's why Jesus uses this language. He commends them in verse 8 for not denying my name, And it's why in verse 9 he mentions synagogues and why in verse 7 and 8 he uses the metaphor of doors being open and shut. In other words, Jesus is reassuring these followers of his that the door might be shut to them, they might be rejected by others, but they are accepted by him. Persecution. But in addition to persecution, this is a community of believers that Jesus says has little strength. We saw that language here. He acknowledges you have little power, and commentators believe that when Jesus uses that language of little, he's also alluding to the smallness of their social influence and their stature. In other words, we believe that the Philippian Christians were mostly lower class economically or politically. They don't have Much the world doesn't recognize them even though they're recognized by Christ. Daily life is a struggle. Maybe it is for you too. And it's in the midst of this layer upon layer of trial and hardship, even pain, that Jesus tells them, tells us, endure. Endure patiently. And as we hear this, I want to point out that there's something surprising, I think, about this counsel from Jesus. See, we tend to think that the answer to our problems is a change of circumstances. Fix it, God. Make it stop. And God invites those prayers. He loves all kinds of prayers from his children. But we tend to think the real problem are our circumstances that God then needs to change. But in the Bible, God tends to offer a different kind of solution when we face hardship and trouble. And it is not a change in circumstances alone, but a change in my capacity inwardly to endure hardship faithfully. The Bible tends to point us towards having and growing in more capacity to suffer and still love my God and my neighbor. The ability to persevere and not give up. And that's precisely what Jesus offers to these Christians and to us. But before we unpack how Jesus brings this word of assurance to the uh, Philadelphian Christians... I want to take a second to to briefly address one difficult feature in this text, and I'm talking about verse 9 that you might have noticed. This verse which uses seemingly inflammatory language like the synagogue of Satan, and which calls the Philadelphian Jewish neighbors liars, and which appears to seek the subjugation of Jews when Jesus promises, I will make them come and fall down at your feet. See, I think it's important to recognize, to acknowledge that historically some of this exact language has been picked up and weaponized against Jews and sometimes even in the name of Christ. In medieval Christian artwork, we have artifacts, evidence even today, of Jews being depicted with devil's horns and other quote-unquote satanic features. And to our very present day, the very phrase synagogue of Satan lifted from this passage has begun trending online as an anti-Semitic trope. And researchers have found a close connection to the use of that phrase with calls for violence against Jewish houses of worship. See, Christians must condemn these heinous distortions of Scripture And more than that, we also need to repent collectively for the ways that Christians have actually fueled and instigated anti-Semitism across the centuries and around the world. We need to do this, and it's especially important today as anti-Semitic slurs and hate crimes against Jewish people have surged across our country and around the world, owing largely to the war in Gaza. Of course, the same is true of Islamophobia and anti-Arab violence that has surged as well. That needs to be noted. And so it's important for us then to be clear about what verse 9 really means. Jesus there isn't calling... Jewish people as a whole satanic, nor is he commenting on anything inherent to their nature as Jewish persons. Rather, he's condemning a specific group of people in a specific place in a specific time who were persecuting followers of Christ and who were, in fact, Serving as instruments, agents of forces, of evil, even Satan himself. There was a specific meaning, a specific application to that phrasing. And even so, of course, evil distortions of scripture persist. It's important to acknowledge. You you yourselves might be Jewish or perhaps a person of Arab descent, And maybe you're feeling the pressures, the threats. You might be facing this. Or all of us, it might be something else a hardship, a trial, a a struggle. It might be financial. It might be a stressful season. It might be the grief of having lost somebody recently. It might be chronic illness, struggles at home or work that might be in a way garden variety, but it's gone on a long, long time. You're running a marathon. And mile 15 is feeling really long. So then, what does Jesus provide for those for whom energy on the inside and outside is running out? How does Jesus provide for our spiritual endurance? How does he help us keep going? Four things quickly. Four things. He points us to, he reminds us of the reality of Satan. The sovereignty of Christ, the security of salvation, and the certainty of glory. Let's take each one of those in turn. Number one, the reality of Satan. We already touched on this. Verse number nine, in the midst of talking about the persecution of his followers, Jesus describes those who are persecuting the Philadelphian Christians as agents of Satan. That's what he's getting at in that language synagogues of Satan. It's a reminder to them and to us that though there might be pains that are being inflicted upon your body, though there might be circumstances that are wielding pressure upon your mind, your relationships, and even your financial well-being, it's a reminder that there's In fact, a spiritual realm beyond what human eyes can see that are invisible to human eyes that are behind our struggle that we must reckon with. Verse 12 speaks of Satan, I mean, sorry, Revelation chapter 12 speaks about Satan using different language, describing him as a dragon, the ancient serpent, picking up on the metaphors and the imagery of Genesis chapter 3. We're told that he's waging heavenly war and prowling around to deceive the world. Revelation 20 recapitulates this idea and describes Satan as bound by God, but yet prowling around deceiving the nations. All of this is exactly what the New Testament tells us again and again, maybe most clearly in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, when the Apostle Paul writes, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. Which means, I don't know what the biggest struggle going on in your life today might be. The thing that most is testing your endurance. But whatever it might be, you need to understand that your struggle is not ultimately an impossible boss. Your struggle is not ultimately that broken relationship or even chronic illness or an empty bank account. Your struggle ultimately is a struggle against the spiritual cosmic battle that is waging around us and inside of us that the book of Revelation is trying to open our eyes to. How does this perspective help us with endurance? The idea here is not to name everything as, hey, that's spiritual attack, spiritual attack, in a way that exonerates us from responsibility. Rather, it's helping us to remember that sometimes we are draining and spending our energy because we're fighting the wrong enemy and we're fighting the wrong battles. Are you? scurrying around thinking that you need to, again, manipulate your circumstances when what you most need is resurrection power to endure that's only made available through the secret of prayer. Or by the recharge spiritually that comes about by being in corporate worship together. Or by eating the feast that's given to starving souls through the ministry of God's word. Sometimes we are withering because we feel attacked and victimized, and yet we're being reminded here that you are not, in fact, merely a victim. You are a combatant, caught up in a cosmic battle. And Jesus is fighting for you. And as we'll see in a moment, Jesus will ultimately win. Sometimes our energy runs out because we forget what's at stake and what's swirling around us. One secret to endurance, spiritually speaking, is remembering the reality of spiritual struggle and a cosmic spiritual battle that's being waged around us. Number two, the sovereignty of Christ. The sovereignty of Christ Let me ask you, in that struggle you're enduring through, who do you believe is in charge? Go back to the top of the passage. In verse 7, we're told this. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. And you got to picture this. A key in the ancient world was quite different from what we're used to. Number one, they were really big chunky things big keys not little ones like we're used to carrying around the ones that jingle in your pocket no and also the way that ancient door locks were made there was only one key per door lock and so you don't have like multiple copies that you share with different friends family members that sort of thing it couldn't be copied you couldn't give it to several people what that meant was if you had the key if you held it, you possessed unique ability to open that door. You possessed unique authority to gain access into that place. In other words, by identifying himself as the messianic keyholder, as it were, of God's kingdom, Jesus was claiming absolute authority as he was claiming himself to be The true Messiah. How does this strengthen us with endurance? I think it's because oftentimes when we're running and running out of steam, we don't know if we have the strength to carry on because chaos swirls around us and we're wondering who is in charge here. Jesus says, Fear not, I am. And of course, by knowing that Jesus is the sovereign king, even over our chaos, it doesn't mean that that makes our struggle with our pain immediately evaporate. We will not always know the meaning of our suffering. But if Jesus is in charge, we can be sure that our suffering is never meaningless. We may not know what that meaning is, but if Jesus is in charge, we can know that our pain is never without meaning. Because sin is strong, but Jesus is stronger. Suffering is strong. That pain in your life is strong, but Jesus is stronger. In fact, what we find in this passage is a promise that Jesus gives that he will protect you. He will protect you. Jesus is so gentle towards us in our weakness. So compassionate. I mean, verse 8, you heard those words, I know you have little strength. I mean, aren't those such sweet words? That Jesus will look you in the face and he won't be like, come on, man, it's not that bad. Or just pick up the pace, run a little harder. It's not that hard. Here's the compassionate, sympathetic Jesus who looks you in the face, wipes your tears, and says, I know strength is running out. I know you're running out. Empty, little strength. I know you feel like you're barely going to make it. I see you. I am with you. And I love you. Do you know this sympathy? And of course he's sympathetic. Do you know that in the book of Revelation, four times Jesus is referred to as the lamb who was slain. He's a suffering savior, a suffering king. He knows a bit of what you're going through. But more than just sympathy, he says in verse 10, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that's going to come on the world to test the inhabitants of the earth. And of course, there's a lot of controversy around this verse, around how to interpret it. And some people believe that it's a reference to one big period of tribulation at the end of history that's coming now. I don't have time to get into all those competing interpretations, but I do believe the best reading is that Jesus isn't talking about one grand event, but rather the ways in which this life is constantly pulsating with episodes of pain and trial. That there are surges upon surges of suffering and pain that we endure. And he is, more importantly, promising that he will keep us, protect us in the hour of those trials. Does this mean that Jesus will rescue us from pain entirely? No. Numerous times he has told us by his own words I will not take them out of this world. He does not promise to remove suffering from our lives. What he does promise is to be with us in the furnace. What he does promise is to be with us in our suffering, helping us to endure. What he does promise is that even if we are afflicted by harm, we will never be ultimately harmed. Though those things of this world may hurt, Jesus will never let any of them be ultimate threats to our souls and to our final well-being. Jesus will protect you and he will do so by being there with you. He will also, as our sovereign Christ, speak truth to you. We're told in verse 7 that Jesus identifies himself as the words of him who is holy and true. True. And the reason why Jesus identifies himself this way is because the Christians he's addressing, as we mentioned earlier, were being told lies. We're hearing that in verse 9. Where he talks about those that were persecuting them. They claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. And in other words, they were claiming the promises of God's to God's people, claiming to be the true Israel spiritually speaking that God had promised to. And yet he's saying what they are doing by kicking you out of the community, they are declaring that you do not belong to God, that you are not one of God's, that you are not the possession of God, that you are not the treasure of God. And he's saying they are lying to you. God doesn't welcome you. You aren't a part of his people. You are unworthy. And do you know suffering people, not just facing persecution, but you, every single one of us, One of the things that most drain our ability to endure is the whispered lies in our heads and hearts. The things that tell you that you're not worthy or that tell you that you are guilty. And I mean that in the way of false accusation. The whispers that repeat to you sins that you've been forgiven of, mistakes that you made, The ways that uh, even distortions of things that happened are sort of repeated in your heads again and again. And the way in which you maybe surround yourself by bad counsel because it it tickles your ears. Because you would prefer to know what makes you feel right rather than what is actually right. Don't believe lies that are being told to you or about you. Here is Jesus speaking truth, the truth speaking one. Where he says to you, above all things, don't you know, verse 9, I have loved you. I have loved you. You might be told you're unworthy, I love you. You might be told or you might wonder if you're worthy of commitment and affection and belonging. I have loved you. You, through thick and thin, even at your lowest, even when you felt you were walking through the valley of the shadow of death itself, I have loved you through it all. Behold the sovereignty of Christ who will protect you and speak truth to you. Thirdly, the security of salvation will take this more quickly. In verse 7, we're told that Jesus holds the key of David. When he opens, no one can shut. And when he shuts, no one can open. He also says in verse 8, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. And this is a direct response, as I've explained, to the claim of local synagogues that only those in those synagogues could count themselves as welcomed by God And part of his chosen people. And so they were excommunicating. Kicking out these newly converted Christian Jews from their community. And Jesus was saying, I'm the one that's got the key to God's kingdom. I'm the one that determines. It's through me that we find who is in and who is out. The doors to the synagogue may have been closed to these followers of him. But Christ has set before them an open door to his eternal kingdom. And it's a door that no one can shut. Jesus is giving them a guarantee of security that they belong to him. He does this again and repeats this theme in verse 11 when he says, "Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. They might steal your livelihood. They might steal your earthly membership badge, but they cannot take your crown. Or verse 12, where he says, no one, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Well, what is the temple of God? It is, of course, the house of the presence of God. And Jesus is saying, if you endure, you will be a pillar. That's a a symbol of permanence, a, a structure that will never fall away. Permanence in the presence of God, never again will they leave it, he says. And in the second half of verse 12, Jesus says, I will write on them the name of my God and I will write on them my new name. You, you've got the name of God inscribed on you. What does that mean? You belong to him, right? Like a kid that writes his name on a ball, right? Right? this is mine, so that if anyone else dares to try to claim that it's theirs, you can point to that and say, no, it says, Duke, it's mine. This ball's mine. Guess what God says about you when someone or something else tries to steal your joy, steal your identity, steal your personal communion With Jesus and your sense of security in him, God grabs a hold of you and declares before the world, she's mine. He's mine. My name is right here. Don't you see it? Inscribed on their souls. Jesus is pointing out a kind of security that we need in a life full of insecurity. When everything else shakes And trembles. He gives us a sense of permanence and irrevocable. Let me say that again. Irrevocable promise that you belong to him. He says it in John chapter 10 verse 28. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. I don't know what you're going through today, but don't give up. Don't stop. Keep going. Why? Because there ain't no mistake that you can make that's going to make Jesus discard you. There's nothing that you've done in your past that will eternally disqualify you. There's nothing that can get in the way of Jesus's perfect purposes for you, even if those purposes remain a mystery to you and me. There's nothing that can get in the way of Jesus's love for you. No one, nothing can snatch you out of his hands. Hallelujah. And that leads us to the fourth and final theme here, the certainty of future glory. You need to hear this. Verse 11, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Now, I said we have a habit of being too quick or too stuck on only seeking a change of our circumstances, rather than understanding that Jesus actually wants to build up in us endurance. He wants to enlarge our capacity to keep on going, loving God and loving neighbor, even in the face of suffering. That's mainly what Jesus is after. Not just the change of our circumstances, but I need you to know, Jesus does promise a radical change of circumstances one day, when he returns, and he promises that he will. He tells us in verse 12, the second half, I will write on them the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And of course, he picks up on this imagery and develops it at the very end of Revelation chapter 21. He tells us that there's a great city, heaven itself, that comes down and floods God's creation and takes everything that's dead and decaying and lost and, and gets swallowed up in glory. And it becomes a radiant image of all that's right and true and beautiful of God. Everything becomes a glorious reflection of God. And we're told in those final verses, he will, in this city, wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. So keep going. I mean, what kind of hope can we draw from this for endurance, the hope of knowing that all the evil, the tiredness, the struggle, The terribleness of life, it's all got an expiration date. And glory is coming very soon. There will be no more war or terror. No more disease or fear or mourning or crying or pain or death. There will be no more marital breakdown or depression or struggle with sin, or addiction, or Alzheimer's, or goodbyes. One day, one day, all mourning will become dancing. All depression will become laughter. All darkness will be light. All warfare will become peacemaking. All waiting will become receiving. All faith will be sight. All hope will become certainty. All patient enduring will finally become resting at last. So keep going, beloved. How do we endure patiently? Remember the reality of Satan, the sovereignty of Christ, the security of our salvation, and the certainty of glory. Beloved, Jesus is coming soon. Let's pray. Faith is what we need to believe these things. And patient endurance is what we need today. Give it to us today. Renew us today. For your glory, for our good, we pray in Christ's name, amen.